Hey Changemakers, welcome to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. My name is Jane Warlow and I have a great guest lined up for you today. Now this podcast is about change and transformation, but not just any old change. We believe in change for good, which lies at the intersection of three things, personal, professional, and social transformation. So come with us on a journey as we go behind the scenes with people who are making a real difference in our world. Each episode, we're going to be diving deeply into topics at that intersection. Sometimes we'll be interviewing thought leaders, and sometimes we'll be leading deep dive conversations, tackling the challenging issues of our times. Now, before I introduce today's guests, I want to ask a quick favor. It won't take a minute and it would make a huge difference to us. Would you please go to iTunes or whatever app you're listening to and subscribe and leave a rating and review? It helps us to share our message of inspirational change with as many people as we can. And it helps our guests get their messages out to more people too. So thank you. So our guest on the podcast this week is Sarah Simmons. Sarah is the founder and director of Her Future Coalition, an international charity that has helped thousands of girls rise out of poverty and exploitation to become free and independent. Over the years, they have saved thousands of survivors in India, Nepal, Cambodia, and Thailand. Most exciting to Sarah is the fact that the survivors who joined our programs a few years ago are now managing the programs, working as trainers and mentors to newly rescued girls. They couldn't imagine any future at all when they were living in brothels. Now their dreams are limitless. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Jane. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, me too. I can't wait to dig into conversation with you because our title is so, I don't know, so resonant for me, I think. And, and our title for today is Standing in the Way to Protect and Defend the Next Generation. Now, our listeners have heard something about you, Sarah. They've heard your professional bio, but I'd love us to kind of go behind the scenes a little bit and you know, ask you, who's the real life human behind that bio? Who's she? Mm, I love that question. Um, it's a little scary for me, but um, <laughs> well, like you, I'm English originally. I came over to America when I was little, but I feel like my my uh, ethnic heritage as an English woman definitely resonates for me in every day of my life. In that, you know, I'm kind of emotionally reserved, um, yeah. and I don't, you know, <laughs> I haven't cried in like six years. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not healthy, um, but I um, I do feel things really, really deeply. And I, what I feel extremely passionate about is these young women that I've been working with for the last 16 years. And I'd say um, I'm a little obsessive in the things that I do and um, do things with, you know, just absolute determination and a friend once described me as like relentlessly positive. <laughs> so that's like, a, I guess that gives you a little bit of an idea of, of the woman behind the bio. Yes. So, I mean, you seem to be making a real difference in our world, but I'd love to know, I mean, what was your journey that brought you to this place where you're in a position and you realize there's a big challenge here that needs you? You know, how did you get there? It was a huge um, divine accident. So um, I was on a very different kind of journey and this was about eight, 18 years ago. 
my kids were really little and um, I was grieving. My mother had just died and was really kind of on a journey about that. And I had a career as a songwriter for film and television. And mostly I would get my songs placed in soap operas in the love and death scenes. And so I had this very, very full busy life with all of that going on. And then something wonderful happened that one of my songs got placed in a film and the film was in going to be in the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City. So it felt like this huge breakthrough and you know a kind of new direction for my professional life. Um, and I went down to New York City to the film festival. And whilst there, I had a free ticket to see any film that I wanted, but very limited time frame. And the only film that was available in my time frame was this documentary about human trafficking, about child sex trafficking specifically between yeah. Nepal and India. And I was honestly, Jane, I was very reluctant to go. I was afraid to go um, and felt that I would be overwhelmed. As I said, I was really grieving and you know, worried that it would be emotionally overwhelming, but more importantly that I just wouldn't be able to do anything about it. So it was just gonna be you know, this devastating subject matter and then feeling powerless. But thankfully um, I did go. It was the only film available in my time frame, and I went and thankfully this film really highlighted not just how horrific trafficking is and the mm -hmm. suffering of these children and women, but also the efforts being made around the world to combat it. And some of those efforts were the survivors themselves who had the incredible courage to put their lives on the line to protect the next generation. And I saw what they were doing and I saw what all these you know, ordinary people were doing, not just people who were you know, working for UNICEF, but all kinds of people. And they were taking action and they were standing in the way and preventing this from happening. And, and I said, you know what, if they can do it, and especially with these girls who've been so traumatized and so abused and now are facing still such obstacles in their life of poverty and stigma and root causes, which still existed, then there's got to be something, you know, I can do to stand in the way alongside them. Um, so I met my husband for lunch and I said, I've just seen a film that's going to change my life. And he's oh. in his typical fashion said, cool. <laughs> and so we set out, you know, together um, really on this journey. And by taking one step leading to the next step leading to the next step ended up starting our organization her future coalition and you know starting with a few girls and just and women and growing upon that and you know finding ourselves where we are today but it was not any kind of a plan um that i could ever have imagined when i left you know my home in cape cod to go to um to go to new york for the film festival i was thinking this is it my career is about to take yeah. off in a new direction Actually, it was kind of the end of my songwriting career or the beginning of the end. And that's okay because it led to this other wonderful journey that I never could have imagined in a million years. Wow. So I just really want to honor that because somehow you've got from sitting in a, in a theater watching a documentary to actually, like you said there, and it says in our title, deciding to actually stand in the way. And I want to honor that because as you were talking there, there's, there's, a, there's a personal parallel with me and I haven't been able to face this thing yet. So I was given a book a few months ago by a friend and it's called, I I'm going to get the title wrong, but it's something like Women Hold Up Half the Sky. 
Mm. Uh, and I started to read the first few um, pages and it is about women and girls sex trafficking in India and I had to put it down I felt so oh gosh it, it the pain in that book has meant that I haven't been ready yet to really read it and face that reality but you you have how <laughs> tell me about that like because that's quite amazing to me what you've just said Sarah well first of all let me just say that what you said resonates for me because I was so resistant um right. and as a you know I am a sensitive person and I feel deeply yeah. the pain of others which me is to too. say I'm a woman <laughs> and, <Yes. you> know, <laughs> and most men I'm a human being you know I think people really feel each other's pain yeah. And that's part of the gorgeous thing about being human. Um, but when, when it's something like that, when you're talking about, you know, 11 mm. and 12 and 13 year old girls being wrenched away, yeah. you know, just, and that kind of sexual violence that just even, you can't even really imagine it. And, you know, there's, and there's nothing to be gained by it, imagining it, but it's, it's, you know, it's so horrific and it's so disturbing. So when I saw that, um, listing in the you know at the film festival it's called the, the day my god died i mean what a title i'm like oh my god you know no i and i said it out loud like no one was there but I'm like no i'm not going to see that yeah and then i looked through the film listings about six more times try to find an option and there was i had a limited time frame and that was it so that's why i went um but i was very very hesitant and it was only by you know kind of being introduced to these individuals both the survivors and the activists and seeing like, okay, there's, there's stuff you can do. Um, right. And you don't have to be, you know, an international development professional or a billionaire or you don't have to be anything. You can work from where you're at um, mm. and you can start by starting. So that kind of became my motto is just like take one step and then take another and then take another. And when I, you know, first started working um, initially was in Nepal, and they had this wonderful folk tale about this little boy, and he's in the jungle, and he's got to get to the next village, and it's super dark, and there's tigers, and what have you all along the way, and he's terrified, and his grandfather gives him a lantern and says, you know, just use this, and he's like, but I can only see three feet ahead of me, and the grandfather's like, well, yeah, walk three more feet, and he's like, you see another three feet and then you walk three more feet and you see another three feet. So that's how you do it. You know, right. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, right. let me try that. And so, you know, we just, we started very small and I reached out to people who were already doing the work and really absolutely passionate about collaboration, not reinventing the wheel. There is no time for that. Um, right. And there's no, and that's ridiculous, you know, so really honoring the work that's already being done, particularly in country by these incredible women and men who've been doing this work for longer and asking them, you know, what kind of help do you need? What kind of help do you want? Um, and do you just want me to fundraise? Um, or, do you, or is there something specific beyond that that I can work on? And the leaders that I spoke to all mentioned the need to work on employment and economic empowerment options because as you can imagine poverty is a major root cause of trafficking 
and the lack of job opportunities and education for girls and women, you know, drives it and is a huge factor. And once you've been trafficked, then, you know, you've got another obstacle that you have this stigma around you that you've been trafficked. So really trying to find jobs or provide vocational training or provide education um, it has was and remains a huge focus for us because we want to try to break down those root causes and you know break down those obstacles so that people can move beyond them. And so we really just started with that and it was very, very simple at first. It was just looking, you know, looked around the shelter home that I was visiting in, in Kathmandu and they were making these cute little handbags and things like that. And I was like, we'll just start by taking these back and selling them in the United States. And I sold them in house parties in my community, um, you know, in, in church basements and places like that. And just started using that as a way to tell people about human trafficking, which at that time was not well known. Nobody didn't, people, they feel that word language for it. So we'd say human right. trafficking and people like, you mean traffic accidents? You mean right. drug trafficking? Nowadays, you know, it's very well known. Thankfully, people are very aware of it. And I think now the struggle is more about what can we do about it. But back then, it was even just letting people know it existed. And these, these little bags became that first step. Um, and it also, of course, provided income to the survivors that were making these handicrafts. And we just started with that and we built on it, you know, year by year. Um, and eventually, you know, we built shelters and we educated hundreds of kids and survivors and high-risk kids growing into brothels and open red light resource centers. And, and as you said in, in the intro, we cultivated leaders from within the survivor community who are now taking it forward and transforming the next generation. And they are, they are way more powerful than I could ever be um, mm. because they get it from, from every perspective, you know, culturally and experientially and everything. They've been there. And so they, they're like a, a beacon of light of what could be. Wow. Wow, and part of me is thinking, I don't really know where to start, but I'm, I'm going to start, I, I really want to ask you, because you said it so easily, like it was the most obvious thing for you to do, that you just went to Nepal with your husband, and you're in Kathmandu, and, but you also said at the beginning, you had young children, so did you just kind of give up your life to do this work? We eventually kind of gave up our life and built a new one. Right. Um, but initially, no. Um, initially, my first trip to Kathmandu, my husband did not come. He stayed home and right. watched the kids. <laughs> um, right. But so initially, the first year, I volunteered um, for existing organizations that were working on this issue, including one mm -hmm. that was based in Boston and was working for an organization called Mighty Nepal that's in Kathmandu. So I just volunteered and I did do fundraising and created, you know, design materials and things like that and just learned and learned. Mm -hmm. And at home, I did a lot of research on right. the internet and books and what have you. And then the end of the year, um, my friends at this organization said, hey, we're going, you know, would you like to come? And I initially thought, you know, I mean, I can't. Yeah. These little ones. But I thought maybe I can. And, um, and I did. And, you know, my husband yeah. um, manfully took care of the home fires and the kids. And then, you know, I just went over there and, and it was scary at first. I didn't just go to Nepal. I went to Cambodia and Thailand and, um, you know, people very generously took me 
into the places where this was happening to introduce me and educate me. And that was eviscerating, you know, yeah. walking through a Cambodian red light area and seeing these young girls and, and the, and the guys um, who just so callously kind of used them and, tr you know, kind of trod on their little hearts and their dreams, you know, with, with such unawareness. Um, it was really hard and, and going to shelter homes and seeing, you know, survivors with babies that they've been rescued with babies and, uh, and the babies had been used as a way to keep them from running away and as a way to keep them enslaved. Those things were really hard. And, and I suppose the, the hardest thing of all was um, mothers, you know, because I was a mother and some mothers came to the shelter home with photographs of lost daughters and to look right. into their eyes and to imagine what they were experiencing with their daughter been missing a couple of weeks and was most likely trafficked and most likely they would never see her again. All of those experiences were very powerful and, and, and painful, but it definitely, um, it definitely added fuel to my fire. You know, when I came home from that first trip, I was like, okay, there is really no turning back. You know, we have got to find a way to be of service. And if it helps one girl to not be trafficked or to, or to find her joy and healing, having already having experienced that, then, then it's worth it. And so um, my husband was an investment banker. And after the first year, he left his job in order to help me set up the foundation and, and became a full-time job for both of us for many, many years. And of course, our lifestyle totally changed. <laughs> and yeah. um, it was wonderful and sometimes very stressful um, to, you know, to kind of just financially and what, you know, to, to, to have such a, a change about. Um, but it was, we both felt it was so worth it because we started to see that one girl becoming, you know, 10, becoming a hundred and, mm. and the, the change that was possible, the transformation that was possible was actually much more than I had ever imagined. Wow. <clears throat> I mean, I just really want to honor the work that you're doing because there's a part of me inside that would prefer not to have this conversation, if I'm honest. And I wonder if there are listeners listening who also don't want to hear what we need to talk about. Because you said very clearly that, um, you know, people know about human trafficking these days, right? I think that's true to a point. But I heard when you were telling me about when you actually went on your first trip, that visceral reaction you had that kind of I don't know, strengthened your courage, your commitment to, I have to do this, right? There's no going back. What is it that we, you know, over here in the US, which is where we're both based at the moment, you know, what is it that we need to know about this space? What do we need to hear? Well, I think one place to start is um, to understand that this is not the movie Taken. <laughs> you know, that is a, an entertaining holiday, ho Hollywood movie. Right. Um, in which, you know, a very wealthy, educated American girl is snatched from Paris. And yeah. not to say that's never happened, 
but that is, you know, 99.9% of the time not what happens. So yeah. whether we're t- whether it's happening in America or it's happening in India or anywhere else, mm-hmm. it has its roots in poverty. It ha- you know it affects people who are marginalized and less visible for whatever reason. So yeah. it happens in America. It happens to kids of color. It happens to kids who are coming out of foster care. It happens to people who have already experienced incest, family violence. Um, it happens to indigenous women. That's a huge and growing problem in the United States. Um, and, and similarly in India, it happens to people from tribal minorities, people of low caste, girls who were denied education, um, orphans, people with disabilities. You know, it is happening to people who already had a series of other vulnerabilities. So if we shouldn't and cannot look at it in isolation of those other issues of other vulnerabilities. And I think we need to start by saying, you know, this is utterly unacceptable and we need to address it multiply from many angles. What makes me feel hopeful about it is that it's an issue that really thrives in silence, in darkness, and in shame. Right. And, you know, you think of like a red light area, it's kind of dark and, you know, there's the, as soon as you start shining a light on the situation, it responds and oh. the situation gets better, you know, and I, I felt it's not one of those intractable, intractable problems like what will we do? You know, I think there's other issues in the world that are actually harder to be a social worker in. You know, for example, I've always thought like, oh, wow, it'd be really hard to work with, you know, adult men, you know, who are alcoholic and homeless. You know, I mean, th- these are, mm. you know, these are hard situations to work with. Um, and working with trafficking survivors in many ways isn't one of them because you are dealing with young people. So there's, you know, there's time and there's a lot of hope and the girls themselves have this sort of incredible resilience within them. And um, as soon as you start providing some tools, they take the tools and they whip up a house. You don't have to build the house. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like they, they run the mile. You just, you know, remove some obstacles, give them some tools they do a lot of the work, you know, for you in a way. Um, and I feel like there's these kind of heroic women and girls that are the backbone of this. Any, any success that our organization has enjoyed and that I have enjoyed is based on their resilience and their heroicism and their ability to rise above these terrible circumstances. And so there's a great joy in working on an issue that responds to you working on it. You know, and I think that I'd like people to know that, that like, I too felt like, oh gosh, what are we going to do? What, you know, possibly can be done here? And actually there's a lot that can be done in every corner of the world. Um, and it's going to be surprisingly successful. You know, and I, I think I, I had a lot of ideas when I started this, that the girls trauma would be so severe and that they would be you know, curled up in the corner in a fetal position and it, you know, it would be really, really hard to reach them. Um, and that is very rare. They are actually incredibly resilient, surprisingly joyful, um, really open, really searching for opportunities and wanting to take opportunities that are given um, more than any people I've ever known. And that makes me feel very excited and want to keep doing the work because it's it's like from a selfish perspective quite satisfying Mm. 
And I'm glad you, you referenced the girl's trauma there because what you say that you, you know, you had this belief that, you know, they'd be curled up in a corner. That's kind of where I, that's how I feel about those, the victims. It's like, how on earth do they come back to life, you know, after having gone through something like that? So it's so encouraging to hear that somehow they do, <laughs> you know, and it's just a simple thing, but like, that's amazing to me that someone can live through and, and then find the resources, implement them. And our title says protect and defend for the next generation. So do they get actively involved? I'd love to know how, how they find some sense of meaning from what they've been through. And I'm going to use our language that we use at Sacred Changemakers, which is, you know, do they find a calling in the depths of the trauma that they've been through? Because it sounds like you have found a calling here. And I just wonder if that's shared by the girls too. It definitely is. And oh, in yeah. some cases, I think it's a calling to become an activist and yeah. to directly um, provide services to help survivors or to protect the next generation. And in other cases, they wish to become a baker or a nurse or something completely different, but that they all want to pay forward. You know, I very, very few don't. I think they all want to pay forward. They, you know, want to become mentors or they want to support others or they're pulling their niece out of a vulnerable situation or they're, you know, educating within their family and community whether or not this is a full-time vocation for them. It's definitely a calling um, to make the world better for women and girls and for everybody you know they're very feminist and very progressive and um very i'd say socially conscious human beings one um girl that is especially dear to my heart <laughs> who has decided to make this a full-time vocation is anjali and anjali and i actually used our covid lockdown to write a book together and it's coming out on july 11th and it's called standing in the way and it tells the story of Anjali's experience. She was trafficked at age 12 from a little village in Nepal. And um, she was taken to a brothel in India and was in the red light area for nearly two years. And, you know, obviously suffered terribly being such a young child in that place. And also, I think the betrayals, the many levels of betrayal that allowed her to end up there. Um, and then she was rescued by one organization. She was given counseling, you know, by others. She, another person helped her to be repatriated. It's this beautiful story of collaboration of people and organizations coming together. Mm. Another organization created a home for her and a family that, you know, at, within, that, within that home where she was able to come back to and be healed and find love. And through all these experiences, she has found a very high level of healing and wisdom. And she's now 25 and in college, she's almost done. And she's going to be going back to her village um, in 2021 and opening a school because the village didn't have a school, hasn't had a school for a few decades. And that meant that there were very few opportunities for girls and a very high percentage of 75, 80% or more of 
little girls were either being trafficked or forced into a child marriage. And Anjali is absolutely dedicated to standing in the way and preventing that from happening. So she's going back and I'm, I'm very excited to support her and walk alongside her and help to make sure that this beautiful vision comes into reality. And, you know, for me, it's kind of like a full circle experience because I met her just a month after she was rescued, which was back in Calcutta. And I've had the joy of walking alongside her, sponsoring and supporting her education. And, and she is a daughter to me. And now to be able to write this book together and get the word out in a bigger way and, and then support her in achieving her vision is literally beyond what I could have ever imagined and one of the greatest joys of my life. Yes, that just sounds quite amazing. And I love the title, Standing in the Way. I mean, why did you choose those words for the title? Well, first it was, it was about this um, wonderful saying from Marcus Aurelius, which is what stands in the way becomes the way. And, you know, she had talked a lot about what happened to her and that it's not like she's not believing that it happened for a reason or, you know, God planned it or anything like that, but more that, okay, it happened. And what can I do with it? What can I, how can I use this? What, you know, did some good things come out of it? Well, they did because, you know, through, through that experience, she, she was able to get an education and go to college and um, be in this loving home and have a different kind of life than she would have had if it had never happened. And so taking, you know, what happened and making it into a strength um, and rather than allowing it to erode you and destroy you and that's kind of her vision and then she sees that all these people who rescued her and gave her counseling and housed her and sheltered her they were standing in the way between her and destruction mm-hmm. and because of them and their love and their absolute commitment she wasn't lost and destroyed you know she has become you know, a, a happy married mom and activist and, you know, college student and soon, soon she'll be, you know, leading her own nonprofit. So I think, you know, she, she saw them standing in the way and now she wants to stand in the way to prevent the next generation. So then that sort of became another meaning of the title that we can yeah. all stand in the way between other people and the suffering. And yeah. we, can, we can just say, no, I won't, I won't stand idly by. I won't walk past. I'm going to stand in the way. And it, those words just, I mean, something visceral happens every time you say them. I've got goosebumps right now because for me, this, you know, being so far removed from this, this situation that you're, you know, you're actively dealing with, for me, feels like something hard and complex. But when you say standing in the way, of course, if, I, if it was ever in my life, that's exactly what I would do. I would stand in the way. I would protect someone from this. And it sounds like such a simple and accessible thing that we can all get involved with. It really is. I mean, I feel like, you know, I don't want people to feel like because I made the decision to, you know, <laughs> to throw my life away. Right. <laughs> you should do. I mean, no, I'm saying... You can stand in the way in, in, yeah. in, in multiple small ways. 
you know, from you know, sponsoring a survivor's education or making a donation or, you know, just engaging with us on social media and, and helping us to get the word out in a different way, you know, volunteering, going on a, you know, a trip, an immersion trip and, and, and getting involved in a deeper way or working right in your own community, like mentoring kids who are coming out of foster care, tutoring, right. you know, being aware that you can stand in the way right at the end of your block, you can, yep. you know, or you might feel called to really get involved internationally. And there's just so many ways to do that big and small and all of them make a difference. And if, if you're the person that's on the other side of that, you would be so thankful. And it, you would hope yeah. that somebody would feel that calling and, and stand up. Yeah. Now, I have a question in my mind, and I don't even know if it's appropriate to ask, really. It feels like a, I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to ask. Please feel free to not answer <laughs> if, if, if it doesn't feel right to you. But... One of the things I'm really curious about that I, I can't quite work out is how do girls get trafficked in the first place? Now, I'm sure there's no easy answer and I'm sure there's, you know, it's like asking how long is a piece of string. But I, I can't imagine as a mother, like, I have a sense that these people are in such dire circumstances that they have no choice, but I'm making that up in my head I don't know and I just wonder like how and what and why do these girls end up in that situation are they, I mean you said you know and it kind of made me giggle that it's not like taken but is it not like taken are they kidnapped like what actually happens to get them into this terrible situation I have never met anyone who was kidnapped off the street Right. Um, everyone, every survivor story I've ever heard, and I've heard thousands, it has to do with someone selling them. Um, and you're right, you know, it's, it's parents who have been driven to desperation where they, to keep their child at home might be life endangering for that child. And Anjali's village is actually a bit of an anomaly it's not, it's not typical, I'd say, of everywhere. It's, it's, it's become, trafficking in that community has become very, very normalized. And people don't think of it as a big deal. And so the parents do, right. you know, send their children or sell their children or all those things. But a lot of times, in many parts of Asia and other parts of the world, parents are, have been tricked by traffickers into thinking that their child is just going to be working as a maid or, you know, in, in some other, you know, maybe doing some light, construction or housework or something and that they'll be able to go to school and send money home and they do not know that it's going to be a brothel and you know but by the time they find if they ever find out it's going to be then too late because the child must be lost in the system there's this really elaborate network of traffickers who have created this story and they reinforce it by sending home women who you know been in brothels for some years and they're dressed nice and fancy clothes and they come back with like you know posh handbags and beautiful nails and and it's like it's great and you know they're they're spinning that story because they have been you know broken down to the level that they've either become a trafficker themselves or are working with traffickers to trick others so there's there's a certain amount of tricking and you know false promises then there's girls who go to cities in search of work because you know to help their family and maybe there's been 
a natural disaster or an environmental disaster or you know, war or something like that. So they're going off. And once they're away from all their support networks, they're incredibly vulnerable. Um, so they might be trafficked by a landlady or a neighbor or something like that because they're cut off from all their support networks. And then sometimes traffickers will go to the village and, and romance girls and like marry them and then, and then take them to, away again from their support networks and, and sell them and then just go back and marry someone else, kind of a lover boy scheme. So, you know, there's this force and fraud and coercion and lying and, you know, um, spinning an elaborate story. Um, and then there's desperation and, you know, severe poverty on the other side of it. Um, and then it also becomes intergenerational. So a lot of times, you know, the mother was trafficked, the older sister was trafficked, you were born into a red light area, you see nothing but this kind of exploitation and violence every night of your life. And without intervention, you know, the boys will become pimps and traffickers and the girls will be trafficked. Um, they haven't seen anything else and all they see of the outside world is people who, you know, either actively use and abuse the members of the community or just walk on by or stigmatize and reject them and blame them for the problem. So intergenerational is another, another huge factor. But like I say, kidnapping and snatching people off the street, I'm sure it happens, but it's, it's quite rare. Right. So my next question is another kind of inane question in a way it feels like, because I want to ask you how big a problem is this? But for me, if there's just one girl being trafficked, of course, it's a big problem. <laughs> um, but I, I do want to get a sense of how pervasive this is because I just, I, I don't, I feel very uncomfortable talking about it, but I feel we need to have a realistic sense of, of what this is. We do. I mean, like I say, it thrives in silence. Yeah. And in us feeling, you know, maybe shame, guilt. I don't want to talk about it. I don't think about it. Yeah. You know, I, I know I struggle with those feelings. The United Nations estimates that there's about 40 million people in the world that are living in some form of slavery, some form of slavery. Some of that is labor trafficking and child soldiers, um, you know, child yeah. marriage, and, and some of it is child sex trafficking because it is a you know underground criminal enterprise getting exact numbers is difficult um yeah. but it is a massive problem india is one of the world centers for it there's you know somewhere between 10 and 18 million enslaved people in india alone and so the reason why i really felt called to work in that region of the world is because just because it's very very high numbers of, of it happening like they say about 15 to 20 Nepali girls a day go over the border, you know, a trafficked, never to return. Right. And there was, there was some real improvement in that. Um, for, after I got involved, there was a lot of people working on it. It was getting better. And then there was a series of earthquakes, 2015 and 2016, which, you know, devastated the economy and broke, you know, people's homes. And, mm -hmm. and then again, the trafficking went way, way up. And now with COVID, um, it's temporarily down because people aren't really moving and traveling. But every time there is a disaster like this, you know, girls pay the price. Um, so we, I do expect to see it happen again. So, but, you know, it is obviously a big problem everywhere. And especially, like I say, when there's 
other related problems, which, which there always yeah. are. Yes. And, you know, at the beginning, you talked about um, kind of raising awareness and education and giving other resources so that, you know, people don't have other options, let's put it that way. And I, I just wonder, you know, um, what happens? Because these girls that have found and been rescued and are coming into your organization, which must be just such a beacon of light for them, what happens to those? There must be an awful lot that don't get rescued. What happens to them? Do they just stay in the, this awful traumatic life? Yeah, some people um, kind of age into it and they at some point become too, too old or too sick to be profitable. And you see those women, they, you know, in the red light areas, they're just kind of pushed out onto the street and they live on scraps of cardboard and, you know, they huh. beg or, you know, and a lot of times people's life isn't super long because of sexually transmitted diseases and also right. tuberculosis, which is a huge issue in red light areas. Um, and then, you know, some people are able to escape on their own after some time um, and make their way home. But that is very difficult because in a lot of areas, you know, they would be blamed for what was done to them and not welcome back home. Right. Um, so they really have really no choice then but to go back into a red light area voluntarily. So mm -hmm. it's really important not just to work with you know young girls who've been rescued that's a very important group to work with and, and what sort of where we started but also to work with families that are in this intergenerational situation that are in red light areas where moms were that girl mm -hmm. um who was trafficked but now you know is a woman in her 30s or 40s with young kids and if you don't intervene at every level including helping the mother and helping the children you know, it's just going to repeat itself. Yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting because I have a background in psychology and, you know, I, I wonder if these girls get into a state that psychologists called learned helplessness, which basically means, I mean, one, one of those uh, experiments that this comes from is um, putting goldfish in a bowl and you put them in a bowl and, and the bowl is inside of a big fish tank and they learn that they've only got this little small area in which they can swim. So when you remove the bowl out of the fish tank, now they've got a lot bigger space that they can swim in. But they don't because they've learned helplessness. They've learned that it does no good to try in this situation to try and run away. It, it doesn't work. And so they just kind of surrender in a kind of a helpless way to the trauma and everything that's happening in their lives. Is that something that happens to these girls in these situations it very much does and right. you get learned helplessness you also get kind of body disassociation um mm. where people start to feel like i'm not here or they say things like i'm not here and sometimes they can't even feel parts of their body you know whether it's a reproductive area or even their arms and legs that they have yeah. so you know completely have to disappear and right. and in the book Anjali talks about that like I made it so I was I made it so I wasn't there I yeah. made my, I made myself not there and I just you know killed a part of myself in order to survive 
Um, yeah. She was rescued in about age 15, but seeing women, you know, who are older, who have been in this for a decade or more, um, there is that learned helplessness. And especially when it comes to themselves, they don't see any way out, but they still, by and large, can find it within themselves to try to protect their children and want something different for them. And, you know, no, no one could do it on her own because the, just the obstacles are just so large. Um, yeah. But once they see, oh, there's a drop-in center or there's an education program or something for the kids, the mothers would make sure that their kids can access that because they do still have a little bit of hope and strength for the next generation. Um, yeah. And want, that to want their kids to have something different. But to get them to want it for themselves is harder. Um, still, you know, possible. And I think um, when they start to see, in that case, someone else from their community who's been able to do something different or get out, seeing another woman, you know, then they're like, hmm, is there, you know, is there another way? But that, you know, it's obviously a longer process, the longer that the trauma has gone on in someone's life. So I'm sure there are people listening that are probably equally horrified and, and also wanting to help in any way they can. And so I just wonder, like, what can, like, if there's somebody listening and they're thinking, okay, like, I want to help, what, what can people do? Well, I would um, first refer people to check out our website, perfuturecoalition.org. And if you're interested in this topic and would like to you know, learn more or maybe explore what I did and what other things you could do, um, check out my books, which are on Amazon. This is No Ordinary Joy and standing in the, the way which is coming on january 11th and you know really educate yourself and learn more about how this happens and what different things you can do about it but i would also invite people to engage with her future coalition on social media be part of the conversation with us of course we love and need donations and support um but there's a lot of other ways to get involved as well um and as i said it is an issue that responds to intervention so let's intervene Let's, you know, let's stand in the way together and stop this happening from the next person. I love that because that just gives me this vision of like all of us <laughs> just like linking hands and standing in the way. And, and, and I'd love to know, I mean, what is your hope for your um, or your vision for your organization? What do you hope you can achieve with this? Mm. Well, I, there's two, it's twofold. One is I am very passionate about you know, building up this army of activists. <laughs> yes. So um, I know that I myself, you know, am not probably going to live long enough to like stamp this out. And, right. and I'm, anyway, I'm one, one person, but my girls, the women that, you know, we have helped to raise and, and give opportunities to, they can do it. They can change society from within. They have the wherewithal and they have the time. And so I very much would like to achieve, you know, continuing to, raise up and give um, voice and power to these women or give them back their, their God-given power um, and help them to, to access all the tools that they need to be truly free and to stand in the way for the next generation. So what, I'd like to do that for a lot more girls. And then, you know, our a focus of our work is in, in Calcutta, India, a couple other parts of India and in Nepal. And so within, within the regions where they work, where we work, I would like to be able to offer service and opportunity to thousands more girls. We do have a model that we know works. You know, been around right. for 16 years now. 
started January 1st is our 16 year anniversary. And um, we have seen that this model, you know, of providing this circle of services in this loving and, you know, sisterhood, um, mm -hmm. it works and it helps people to heal and it gives them the tools to be able to um, live the life of their own limitless dreams. And so I'd like to be able to offer that to more girls and not be limited by, you know, our budget and size and be able to say, you know, if there's a girl in a shelter in Calcutta or in, you know, in Kathmandu that we would be able to reach and provide these services to so that they too can reach their unlimited potential. Mm. I love that. And like I've described, you just sound like such a beacon of light in what sounds like a whole, you know, kind of environment of darkness. And I, I can't begin to imagine like how free or liberated these girls, these lucky girls must feel when, you know, they are able to have access to resources that they need to make a difference. I mean, I just, you know, I'm putting my hands together, Sarah, you know, kind of just to honor you because it's amazing what you're doing and the difference that you're making. And I just want to, well, honor that because we need people. We need more people like you doing this work in the world so that, you know, our world becomes one where it is more equitable and the people that need access to resources get that access so that this doesn't happen. And I, I love the honesty as well that you've brought to this conversation because you said, you know, and it was kind of intuitively my feeling that this isn't going to be stamped out in just one generation. So there is a future like looking forward here for protecting and defending the next generation of girls and women, which feels so, so resonates with me, what you're talking about. Thank you. And thank you for shining a light on it. And especially yeah. for that image of us all linking arms and standing in a way that's just, <laughs> I'm going to hold on to that. And yeah, that's what it's going to take. And it does work. Yeah. So I'm just going to encourage everyone when you're, uh, you know, go, go, go and visit. Everything will be in the show notes. Please go and visit, go and have a look for yourself and, you know, make up your mind if there is some, whatever small contribution you can make to this, whether it's your time, your energy, your money, whatever resource it is, you know, I think this is something that is very deserving. And from what Sarah's telling us, we can make a difference here. So why not you? Why not get involved at some level? Um, Sarah, I'm noticing the time and I just want to um, ask you one final question. If there's something that um, you'd hoped we'd get to talk about today, you know, something that you'd want to share with our listeners, what might it be? Well, I feel like we covered so much wonderful ground and I feel like we've, we've walked that village with that lamp in our hands. Um, yes. But I just want, you know, something that's kind of been on my heart and it's kind of in my mind lately it, yeah. with the world as it is and the challenges that everyone's facing. And, you know, if I hear the word unprecedented one more time, I'm going <laughs> to scream. But, you know, yes, yes, it is. It is a tough time. It is yeah. a tough time. And 
And it's obviously tougher yet for people who are already on the margins right. everywhere. And right. so, you know, what I want to say is let, let's see what love can do here. Mm. Let's not give in to hopelessness and despair. Let's choose hope every day and let's see what love can do with trafficking and with our political divisions and our racial anguish and all the all the challenges that we're facing you know as a country and as a world let's just see what love can do yes and it sounds to me like uh, you talking there about love we talk about this a lot in sacred change makers and um you know it really is i think sacred work that you're doing here it feels to me being in conversation with you as we have been it feels to me like the divine is working through you you know whatever that means to people when i say the word sacred i don't i don't link it to any religion but it feels like you are really bringing that light to a situation that really needs it and i just want to finish by really honoring everything that you and your organization and your girls are doing in this space because I think it takes courage and I think it takes boldness and I feel viscerally all of that in you so thank you thank you well that's all we have time for today thank you so much for listening in before we go I want to remind you that all the resources and links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com and our growing community of changemakers are actually our sponsors who help us to keep doing our work in the world. We're a network of people committed to making the world a better place. We support each other to grow personally and professionally and together we are making a direct impact aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals all visible on our website. So if you're interested, I invite you to take a look. It's time to build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs from you. Together, we can make a meaningful difference. Again, you can find us at sacredchangemakers.com. And if our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. So for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your intentions and efforts to make our world a better place. Until next time, 